Welcome, friends. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences. We are the weekly podcast and radio show of the Catholic Association where you get witty and charming conversation about the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers of our time. If you're listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Fridays on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And if not, you're listening for free wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcast, or you can search for Conversations with Consequences on any podcast app. And do us a favor, rate and review us, because this helps other people find our show. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie. I'm your hostess at the Catholic Association. And today, as mostly usual, I am joined by my good friend and my colleague at the Catholic Association, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer, that I fondly call the legal eagle, because she's our legal expert, our lawyer. She, she makes um, smooth for me the ways of, of legal talk, which I can never understand. Yes, every, time, every time I get one of those emails about something that just happened at the Supreme Court, I call Andrea and I say, Andrea, what the heck does this mean? No, and it's very hard to find in Washington a lawyer. So I'm really glad to be able to, to be the legal eagle for you and help make I things. wish that were true, Andrea. <laughs> That's the doctor in me talking. I have a natural antipathy. But it's, it's wonderful to have you here in, in D.C. I always love when you're here in person instead of remotely from your Miami-based closet. Well, I've been coming up a lot because I'm filling in for Catherine Hadro at EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. They put me in to be an anchor. I'm so excited. I think I'm, that it was I'm actually... Very, I'm a very miserable anchor, I think, but, no, <laughs> but I'm look, enjoying it. You smile beautifully. <laughs> you smile beautifully. I love watching it. I, and you can actually find those on the internet. You should know that, everyone listening out there. Oh, maybe we'll link to our podcast. On our podcast show notes, we'll, we'll link to one of my best episodes, whichever yeah. one that is. I'm the afraid one. to watch them. My no, hus- I think you're My beautiful. husband says I'm doing okay. <laughs> I think you're doing wonderfully. Um, and I am really happy because I've been, although I've been chastised that I tend to compliment every single person that comes on this show. Who chastised you? I think it's your brother. My brother? Your bro- yes, your brother chastised me for that. But, but don't um, listen to him. I've but been making been... <laughs> a practice of not listening to him since no, he was born. No, it's very good. Yeah, because he's younger. Um, but the, we have a great guest on who I can't sing enough praises for Gracie because not only is she... Um, an incredible professional, and, and we're going to have a great conversation. But she is going to be married to one of the finest men in all of Washington, nice. D.C. Yes, super excited. <laughs> and she's a knockout, so it's a shame that we don't have video attached to the podcast. Because well, we'll definitely have pictures. Beautiful. Yes. Maybe not of her intended spouse. That might be too much. <laughs> Just such beautiful people. Well, our friend, our, our, our new friend and our guest is Laura Brayman. And she's the Senior Program Manager for Child Protection and Education at World Vision. And in her capacity at World Vision, she oversees programs to address sex trafficking, sex trafficking in India and Guatemala, child labor in Bangladesh, female genital mutilation and cutting in Kenya, child marriage in Mozambique, and early childhood education in Jordan's Syrian refugee community. That's a very varied and diverse mm-hmm. <laughs> number of things that she's looking into. She previously served as a human trafficking specialist at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office on Trafficking in Persons. She's testified before Congress on child protection issues in Bangladesh. And just to inform our listeners, World Vision is a global Christian relief, development, and advocacy organization dedicated to working with children, families, and communities in over 100 countries. They do amazing work. And um, it's wonderful to have Laura with us here today. Hello, Laura. Hi. Thank you all so much for having me. 
So we, we wanted to have you come on and talk about human trafficking. And human trafficking, it's, uh, it's an interesting phrase. Uh, and to me, it's a, it's a phrase that can be a little confusing because you think trafficking obviously means you're, you're moving things around, in this case, humans. Um, and, and I think human, it's, it's better to think about it in, in broader terms. But Laura, you can explain better than me. Sure, sure. So I think one of the, the best, most basic ways to think about human trafficking is, as you had mentioned earlier, to convert it into the term modern slavery. It's a, a, a bit more palatable sometimes for a general audience. And um, and then in keeping with um, most of the foundational and, uh, and major legal documents around the world, thinking about trafficking as um, the use of force, fraud, or coercion uh, to compel people into labor or sex. And that can happen anywhere. Um, it certainly happens in the United States. People can be trafficked from other countries into the United States, um, trafficked um, domestically, internally, um, for labor and sex, and um, and generally. Uh, and of course, there are other great patterns um, throughout around the world. Um, people going from uh, Bangladesh into India. Uh, others um, moving uh, northward from Southern America into Central America, but um, it can happen anywhere. Um, and um, and uh, so Americans anywhere in any city or any small town in the United States could be near uh, a situation of modern day human slavery and right. not and be completely unaware of it. Right. So it's generally people who, for whatever reason, um, have. Uh, have kind of made their way into generally an economic class where it's difficult for them to to attain the kinds of jobs that you would want for yourself or for your own children, or um, run away and homeless youth. Uh, that's a that's a big um, population that's targeted. Children in the foster care system, uh, people working in the in the uh, migrant agricultural field. Um, yeah, so. Those are some of the general areas that you might find um, human trafficking victims um, just anywhere in the U.S. Laura, one of the things that I appreciate about um, many of the presentations that I've read and and seen that you've given is you come at this very heavy um, topic of, of trafficking Clearly, from a Catholic perspective, even though it's you're working with um, people of all different faith traditions or none at all, but you start um, from a place of of great truth, and you start at the the beauty of the human person and the dignity of the human person. And I think it might help our conversation kind of launch in a in a helpful way, so that people don't think this is a terrible, sad topic. That we really um, start off with the notion of, you know, human dignity and beauty, even in these people who are being treated as objects. Yeah. Well, when when we start looking at sex trafficking specifically, the the thing that I think it really boils down to is the enmity between men and women. And when you look at our own theology and our Christian um, mythology, if you want to use that word, when you go back to the Garden of Eden, sin enters the world through the enmity between the man and the woman. And so that um, that relationship either becomes the gateway for life or for death, and um, and the human body itself, especially the the female body in its um, in its vulnerability, um, in, in its receptivity, um, becomes the site of either honor or disgrace um, exerted by um, by the strength of the masculine. 
And uh, one of the ways that I really love to go at talking about um, about human trafficking and sex trafficking specifically is by looking at um, the Degas wax and plasticine statuettes that are in the the basement concourse at the National Gallery of Art. Mm. Um, they are uh, very um, earthy. Uh, they were they were done by Degas almost in secret um, across a number of decades. Um, many of them were unearthed um, after um, his death. Um, he did them almost in a kind of meditative state where he would take just what he had as an artist on hand. Um, when when they've done the X-rays of the of the um, sculptures, they've found pieces of cork and um, and wine corks, in fact, and uh, pieces of broken pencils and paintbrushes. He took what he had on hand and then he cladded to these broken bits um, the beeswax and plasticine, what he had available, and created these very lovely glistening female statuettes. They're all nude, but um, when I encounter them, it's almost as if I see their skin first, mm. because you can see um, the imprint of his of his fingers as he shaped them. They're glistening because of the beeswax. So even though they're unclothed, they're um, they're kind of like just primal and and beautiful, and it's not necessarily a kind of uh, uh, it's 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 not it's a not look erotic. at the sexual exactly it's not erotic <laughs> it's um, it's human and um, and I the reason I love these statuettes and the reason that I have kind of um, attached myself to them and my own meditative consideration of um, of this act of violence is that um, when I was uh, in my early twenties and. Um, and uh, just kind of beginning to work in human trafficking, I uh, spent some time in Bolivia working with a, a small Christian NGO that did street outreach among women in prostitution and in the slum above La Paz. And um, when I came back to D.C., I was really grappling with what it, what did it mean to be a woman? Mm-hmm. I had just been in this place where women were denigrated. And in fact, El Alto, this slum that's a mile above La Paz, it's the place where... Um, where at that point prostitutes had kind of come, women in prostitution, excuse me, had come to end their um, exploitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, women who had kind of gone the circuit of the of the warmer um, cities and towns um, ended up in El Alto as the last ditch effort. And so the majority of them were mothers. Many had been mm-hmm. married, um, you know, at, at least once. Some of them were grandmothers. And, um, and I think growing up in a household of daughters, I... Of all girls, I I had some, it sounds kind of backwards or upside down, but I had some sort of intuitive understanding that when you get a group of women together, you can either have a feminine dystopia that's based (laughs) on kind of a competition and, and a kind of painful vying for whatever love is available, or you can have a great harmony of friendship. And many of these women in that feminine dystopia of the red light district truly desired friendship. And, um... And I was I was very young. I was in my early to mid twenties. I was very innocent. Um, I had not encountered that kind of pain before. Uh, as I've spoken elsewhere, I, they received me in my innocence as you know it turns annoying and, and strange and 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 privileged in a certain way. Uh, but so when I got home, I was grappling with the fact that I had entered these women's lives. I, they had entered mine. What did it mean to be kind of part of like a corporate female body and to encounter this? the grave enmity that had resulted in uh, systemic and heartbreaking violence and a violence that um, not only broke down the women who received it, but then set up the children um, who were who were born of that violence uh, for a very 
kind of grave second-class citizen status. To grow up in that red light. Yeah, exactly. And to grow up not knowing who their fathers were, if they were even, you know, given the opportunity to live. So in any case, so I come home, you know, and I'm 23, 24 years old, and I find these statues in the basement of the National Gallery, and I wander around them, like, for hours at a turn, weeping, (laughs) just, like, observing them and thinking... These are female bodies that are presented in um, in their essence, um, unclothed, but as you said, not for an erotic purpose, for a meditation on their beauty. And um, some of them are, you know, like leaning and kind of wiping off their side. One is kind of relaxed and lazing in a bath. One is receiving a massage. Many of them are dancers, so they're mm-hmm. they're stretching and they're moving, and they've uh, got these kind of beautiful classical poses. And um, and those those statues um, really redeemed my um, understanding of the of the female body, um, and gave me an an entry point. Um, for eventually conceptually receiving the theology of the body, which um, you know at its at its base it it, um, it invites you to think of the human person as a gift, and um, and each um, intimate act of friendship or sexuality as an exchange of gifts and an entrustment of each person to the other. I'm think I'm glad that you brought up John Paul, um, and I re- I'm remembering there's a beautiful letter that he wrote to artists. And, and talking about art as a reflection of the beauty of God's creation. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with. And, and the it, opposite it, of pornography. Yeah, yes. ab- and there's a lot of stuff you know, presenting itself as art that doesn't show beauty, so it's not really art. Um, and and it, it's nice that, that the, the art and the beauty of Degas was a way to enter into the truth of creation and the truth of the dignity of the human person, especially of women after seeing women in in Bolivia being treated with such disrespect and treating themselves with such disrespect. Um, Now, and and you're a convert. Yes. As you've come into the church, has that truth become even more apparent from the first time that you were walking around as a 20-something in the basement of the gallery? Yes, most definitely. And one of the reasons is that um, sexuality uh, has, it can its fulfillment can come um, in uh, reciprocal active entrustment in the relationship between a man and a woman, or it can come um, in the fulfillment of a, of a consecrated vocation or in a single life lived with chaste joy. Um, when I, as I, when I grew up in evangelical Protestant, I love my foundation. I love the world that created me, and and the kind of the the foundational principles that gave me of what it meant to be human and male and female. But there was there was no um, end point for my sexuality beyond marriage. If I didn't get married, then um, then my sexuality almost became suspect. But so in in um, the Catholic world. Uh, I had a. I was. It, what's been beautiful is to see that, um, you know, in especially in the lives of people who are recovering and um, healing from uh, the grave violence of um, sex trafficking, modern slavery. Um, the there can healing can be found in the in the intimacy of a life of chastity lived um, with deep friendship with other people, or it can be found um, in the sexual entrustment of a marriage relationship, either way. So it doesn't have to be marriage as the, as the end point of healing and the only kind of like 
source of healing, but it can also be the entrustment of friendship and then a close, a life lived closely with the Lord. Were some of those women in Bolivia, would you have considered them modern slaves? Were most, they living in coarse situations? Most definitely, yes. Especially, um, for instance, women who had um, begun their exploitation as children or teenagers. So there had been no choice at the beginning. And then it was a very kind of like um, denuded and, and, and constricted sense of choice that led them um, as adults to continue um, in, in prostitution. So most definitely. Here in the United States, there are very strong movements to legalize prostitution. I believe here in D.C. there's a very strong one going on right now. How does that, what does that make you think about our, our modern Western culture yeah, so here I, in the U.S. specifically? That's a, that's a great question. I think that um, decriminalization and, uh, is, is, is another way to look at it because the women who end up in prostitution um, and in uh, modern-day slavery of the sexual version, um, there have been a variety of studies done over the years showing that many of them are, come either from families um, or communities where they were um, sexually abused as children. Mm-hmm. And that be- that was the beginning of the grooming process that led them to think of themselves as um, primarily a sexualized person whose, whose worth came from transactional and sometimes violent sexual encounters. And um, and so in the decriminalization movement, it's um, it's putting the kind of the legal responsibility on the on the person who buys sex rather than the person from whom sex is purchased, if that makes sense. Um, in trying to account for the fact that the person from whom sex is purchased is is most likely or in many situations is someone who's um, who's whose choice is is really not a choice. It has come through um, a kind of a grave um, arc of abuse and violence. But isn't it true that to legalize prostitution would be to make these situations of modern-day sex slavery just that more difficult to um, uh, find and extirpate and, yes, and crush? Yes, most definitely, yeah. And so I think that, again, it's if you shift the... Um, I think shifting the, the legal... Um, the the person you're going after, and separating it from being the the person who's selling sex to the person who's buying sex, then d- deals with the demand issue. If you can deal with the demand issue, I think you have a better chance of actually dealing with the with the reason why the person who's selling sex has, sex has gotten to that point at the fir- in the first place, of re- of reversing the script so that person is no longer um, someone who's thought of as something that can be bought and sold. Um, uh, or someone who can even be complicit in their own uh, in the act of buying and selling, but in some ways they are. But in, in, if you go after the person who's purchasing, you um, you really look at you end up getting a different lens for dealing with the violence, um, and I think one that's actually more pointedly attached to the the real um, kind of gruesome problem at the heart. Laura, I've um, really enjoyed something that when you were talking about human trafficking and talking about the violence um, that accompanies human trafficking, you've said that it it seeks to destroy beauty. Mm -hmm. And you also talked about something, and I hope that in our second segment we can delve into more, which is the destruction of that human agency. Yeah, let's Um, take... Whether it's a woman or whether it's a man, and, and I think that'll help us understand the fragility of either the victim or the survivor of a trafficking situation and how agency has really been compromised in that. Okay, we'll pick that up right after the break. This is Conversations with Consequences. 
Welcome back, friends. I am your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, at Conversations with Consequences of the Catholic Association. I am here today in the DC studio with my good friend and colleague, Andrea picciotti Bayer, And we're talking to our new friend, Laura Brayman, who is the Senior Program Manager for Child Protection and Education at World Vision, a Christian global relief agency. And we've been having a really interesting conversation about modern slavery Uh, Specifically, we're talking about sex trafficking or sex slavery um, and also about how this doesn't, how this, uh, the the best way to approach this is with a a, a real understanding of the dignity of the human body. And for us Catholics, the theology of the body uh, brings us to that point in a very, in a very lovely way. And Andrea, you were asking a question right before the break, which I didn't understand. So can you tell us again? (laughs) I'll dumb it down. (laughs) It, it was um, Laura has been very, very helpful in explaining how trafficking, especially sex trafficking, really attacks the agency of the victim or of the survivor and tries to undermine and destroy the agency that all of us have, right, to make decisions to, you know, not only um, about our movement and about our openness to, you know, and encounters with other people, but also kind of our identity of our own selves. And um, I thought it would be helpful, Laura, if you could talk a little bit about the example that you saw in the Yazidi women in in Iraq especially and and how when ISIS um, went after them and, and other um, religious minorities, what their ISIS's uh, goal or aim was in trafficking these ethnic minorities. And enslaving and, them. And and how they've gotten through that since ISIS has been destroyed, blessed be God. So uh, the two um, ideas, the concepts that, um, that I've talked about in this realm are super basic, agency and freedom. Agency being the capacity to act on one's own behalf and freedom being the capacity to discern when and how to act. And human sexuality is kind of the a very primal bodily seat of agency and freedom. Because there are two capacities that are really key to human individuation and human perseverance um, and to um, entering with God into the, the generative act of sex that creates new life. Um, and that um, is based on, um, and it's, well, in the in the most ideal situation, it's based on the loving predilection that um, that JP two John Paul II talks about um, in meditation on givenness. One of his, I think, his most beautiful distillations of um, of uh, of the theology of the body. Um, so when you look at um, one of the most recent examples of sex trafficking that's um, that's happened on the international stage. Um, uh, shows how some, oftentimes sex trafficking can be used um, as uh, as one of the tools of uh, genocidal aggressors. Mm. Um, so, in genocide, there's uh, uh, you know there's kind of different stages by which um, a certain community is um, is isolated. Uh, their dignity is leached from them, both in um, in 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 civil and um, other uh, more informal community uh, forms, and um, they become a group of people um, um, on whom violence can be exerted uh, with impunity um, by the mm. community at large. And um, so um, the kind of logic behind some of the sex trafficking with um, with ISIS and Yazidi women was about, um, it was about the, the valence of religion. It was about um, uh, kind of a, a kind of... Um, 
uh, reasoning about which religion is stronger. How does the religious identity, uh, how is it transmitted? Um, in in this situation, uh, what was happening was that um, the Yazidis are a, a, a historic, a religious minority, religious and ethnic minority with deep roots in, in um, Iraq regions. And um, and uh, they were a group that ISIS wanted to wipe out. Um, and it was kind of this terrible, perfect storm of um, theologies where ISIS believed that... Um, you call them pagan devil worshippers, right? Right. ISIS <laughs> called um, the Yazidis pagan <laughs> devil. Some of my best friends. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yes, that was, that was uh, what they called them. The, they called the Yazidis pagan devil worshippers, and they promoted a, shir- a Sharia law argument mm. um, justifying the enslavement of... Uh, of these families and taking their women as concubines. And they also, the the ISIS theology was that any child born of a, of a, of a sexual act with a Yazidi woman um, uh, produced a child who was um, Muslim. Um, mm. and, um, and does the child belong to the mother or the father? Well, this is where things, you know, kind of get um, complex. In the Yazidi religion, um, and, and ethnic you know, understanding of the world, um, it's very important to keep ethnic purity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yazidis do not um, intermarry, um, and they do not, um, anyone who marries outside or has a sexual liaison with someone outside of the community, um, that child will is not allowed to become Yazidi. Hmm. And so... Um, really? G- correct. And so... So it, you've got ISIS claiming the child as the Muslim, mm-hmm. and, and the faith community or the ethnic community of the mother not accepting the child. Correct. Um, which has created a... The poor a, mom. Yeah, a, a really heart-wrenching uh, conflict for the mothers who then have to make a decision. Um, will will she remain with her child hmm. and and renounce her connection to her community? Uh, which is which is a very unique and and um, insular and specific community. It's it's not a, a community that's got a large diaspora where she could go and and start a new life. What in a terrible situation, Laura. Correct. Yeah. Or will she relinquish her child and um, and return? And alone? the Muslims knew the ISIS knew that what they were doing when they were doing this. Obviously, they know that they are creating impossible situations for for these that women is, and the children. That is correct. Yes, and. Um, there are um, some very heart-wrenching stories, of course, um, of uh, of mothers having to make this decision, um, and there have been, uh, you know, informally, um, you know, some moves unique to specific families where you know, a father and a mother will determine that they are willing to receive their daughter hmm. um, and the child because there's an understanding that the child was born of a of a violent of rape. Yeah. Right, exactly. And it was not a consensual sexual act and it was not, you know Well there wasn't that agency. Correct. There was no agency and there was no freedom. <laughs> it was a uh, it was a woman on on whom violence was exerted and the and the child itself of course is I mean, thank God these children are still given um, the opportunity to uh, for life. Um, but then the the question is, how will they live? There's There was one instance, I guess, where one of the religious leaders of the Yazidi communities mm-hmm. kind of broke from a rigoristic tradition, mm-hmm. right, and, and welcomed back these Yazidi women instead of shunning them. Yes. Um, maybe you can explain a little bit about how there's... There's a whole lot of light in this story. Sure. So um, Baba Sheikh is a prominent member of the Yazidi Supreme Council. And in 2014, um, he declared that um, ISIS uh, sex trafficking survivors could return to the community um, rather than face exile. 
Mm. Um, unfortunately, that was um, reversed in um, May 2019. So even if they come back not pregnant, uh, they're not welcome traditionally? Correct. It's the, ha- the act of having had sexual union with someone outside of the ethnic enclave. That will, Even if it was forced. Correct, right, <laughs> which is very heartbreaking. Um, um, but in, as, early, as recently as May 2019, he did um, reaffirm that the traditional Yazidi bloodline rules um, still hold for children that are born to the, to the ISIS fathers and that the children have to be left behind if the mothers want to return to the, to the Yazidi communities. There are a number of, um, of nonprofits um, in, in Iraq and Syria um, that are doing really excellent work, some of it underground um, and um, rather clandestine, um, to care for these children, um, to figure out the best way to unite them um, with local families um, or with um, international adoption. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, you know, that's, that's, all those are really heartbreaking questions. You know, how, how, do, you, how do you help a child um, kind of uh, regain a sense of his or her own value and dignity in the face of that and really enormous and heartbreaking cleft, you know, when they're separated from their mother. It seems to me that Christianity has the answer to all these yeah. terrible questions, right? I mean, number one, Christianity has the answer to why rape is uh, completely anathema to the human, to, the, to any dignified human life, right? To mm-hmm. take, to, through self-indulgence, to, to take the intimacy and, and safety and, and agency and freedom away from someone else. Yes. It, that's rape. I mean, and it, it also is manifested in many other ways, but that's very unchristian. And also these ideas that human beings become uh, acceptable or unacceptable depending on their bloodlines and their, their origin or, 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 that the, or that you can defile a person mm-hmm. by raping them. Or by enslaving them. I mean, I'm sure that there's that's that's another idea, right? That if you've you've been a slave, even if that's just a labor slave, then you're defiled. You've you've lost that your dignity, right? So Correct. so Christianity comes upon the world two thousand years ago, and it declares uh, a new idea about humanity that that human humans have an inherent dignity, which cannot be defiled, which is not dependent on their bloodline, mm-hmm. and which necessitates a certain kind of um, treatment about them that that completely outlaws things like rape and slavery and uh, genocide, obviously, and and all the other ways that men and women abuse other men and women. Mm, that's very true. And then also, uh, you know, we are a religion of adoption. You know, when you look at the mm-hmm. language of the New Testament, uh, we are we are grafted <laughs> on. We become heirs as the son is the heir, and. Um, and so, and um, we do this by virtue of our shared human dignity. Mm-hmm. The right. reason that a, a person—I'm an adoptive mom, Laura. <laughs> I'm sorry, you had to bring it up. <laughs> you got me started. Yay! But uh, the the reason that a human can adopt another human being, and and that person becomes a part of your flesh, basically, without the bloodline, is because of our inherent human dignity, mm-hmm. as yes. we understand it from our Christian faith. Earlier this morning, uh, someone said, well, we live in a society that's no longer Christian. And I was like, hey, now. Um, and, and though there are a lot of uh, people who's, who are falling away from their faith, and the, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is still known. Um, and obviously people need to, to, to speak it more and, and to need to study more. But the imprint of Christianity on our laws, especially in the West, is still notable. And in our minds, our characters, we yeah. can, 
people can call themselves secular. I have a lot of secular friends who are, are practicing very Christian but they, lives. <laughs> but they still understand, for example, basic human rights and the basis of human dignity. And, and they're using Christian concepts to do it. Perhaps, Laura, you are working with an organization, World Vision, that's, you know, I think you're headquartered here in like, D.C.? In Seattle, but in with Seattle. a large Seattle's presence here awesome. in D.C. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and, you know, you've seen a lot of the Western countries. Um, maybe you can speak in the case of the Yazidi women and in the case of kind of rebuilding after um, ISIS was pushed out. What has been the contribution of Western nonprofits, NGOs, and, and Western states like the United States in helping to kind of infuse these concepts, even if they're not being infused in the name of Christianity, mm-hmm. but as far as kind of the, the influence of, of a Christian mindset in helping to address what, what's a human tragedy, and, and the best word to say it is a, a genocide, right? It's a, an attempt to destroy an entire uh, people. With, through violence and, and, and enslavement. Yes, well, there's been a coalition of, um, of predominantly uh, Christian uh, Western actors from both the U.S. and Europe who have uh, invested heavily in terms of advocacy and also financial aid um, to the Christian Yazidi and Kakaia communities um, in the Nineveh Plain and, and surrounding in Iraq. Um, as, as part of our the understanding that... Um, uh, a free and just society requires the presence of, of, of a variegated religious landscape. You have to have people um, who are representing um, different faiths um, and doing so robustly if you want to develop a society that is uh, able and willing to um, have uh, to sustain a conversation um, about that's actually about human rights and not simply about um, kind of the, the iron fist of a of a, of a dominant um, religion or political mm-hmm. sphere. Uh, so that's that's one that's one um, key way. Um, not only in um, investing in infrastructure um, in terms of um, rebuilding houses, roads, water systems, um, electrical grid, but also in uh, funding the the safe houses and the restoration homes. Uh, the counseling, the economic development components mm-hmm. um, for the Yazidi women and their children um, who are not able to go home or who are in that uh, very uh, long and tender conversation with their families about what's next. Mm-hmm. No, and the what's next is a conversation or a question I'm sure that faces all uh, actors in human trafficking. What's next? Um, whether it's by virtue of genocide or whether um, it's human trafficking that we see in our neighborhoods, what's what's our next step? How do we kind of pull back to appreciate the dignity of, of the woman and of, of the young girl, uh, especially one who's been through that kind of trauma? And the boy. Yeah, horrible. <laughs> Awful. And Laura, what people who are listening to this and feel themselves very, very far away from mm-hmm. all of these situations that we're talking about, mm-hmm. whether it's Yazidis or... Or, or prostitutes here in the United States. We don't even know people like this. I never will meet them. What do you have to say to them about what they, how they can approach this? Sure. I think one of the um, one of the best ways to approach it is um, is to think about think about runaway and homeless youth. That's super super basic, mm-hmm. but I think it's a it's a good inroad um, when the family sadly breaks down. 
um, and you have young people who are grappling with their agency and their freedom and with a sense of independence that comes with um, with the teenage years. Um, and, and when you have young people who are accessing a whole range of often uh, violent and contorted mm-hmm. understandings of sexuality on the Internet, um, and uh, then and nothing beautiful, and right? Nothing, nothing beautiful. Um, then it's a, it's a, it can be an unbelievably quick path um, to exploitation. Um, so the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children um, has some really solid and sobering statistics regarding um, regarding the vulnerability of young people to um, sexual exploitation and um, sex trafficking. Uh, once they leave home, and, but but when you could pull it back even farther, and, and you or when you pull, pull it in even closer, um, and you look at um, any family that's got kids between the ages the ra- the range of ages between like ten and seventeen, ah. right? <laughs> um, you you know how hard it is to parent in those years, and in the end, what do those children really want? They want to know about their own dignity. They want to mm-hmm. know about what it means to like to have a, to be a sexual person and to put that in the context of um, both a sobriety and a joy and um, and and that's a it's a heavy lift as a parent and parents need an entire community to help um, well and it's not just up. in your own home it's paying attention to your neighbors kids and your friends you know your children's friends and looking for the signs of weakness or vulnerability or mm-hmm kind of insecurity that could put these kids in a, in a state of of victimhood. Correct. And and we live in a, the way it works, you know, bureaucracy, bureaucracy can stabilize. You know, we want to have a justice system and a legal system that are responsive when a law is broken, but it's love that heals. Mm-hmm. So you're looking to have functionality on both sides, that um, that a child who's been exploited, the family can immediately call the police, know they'll have a response, um, get a lawyer on board and go through the judicial process. But then also in the friendships, in the, in the family life, there is the availability of love. There are people who are ready to love, to have the long sustained friendship that, um, that excavates the pain and leads the way toward healing. And what about World Vision? What's World Vision doing? Give us a, a very quick, we have to almost uh, end our show, but tell, give us a quick thumbnail sketch of what World Vision is doing. Sure. World Vision is doing really excellent, innovative work with human trafficking. I'm going to highlight my favorite work. It's um, We're doing a large-scale anti-trafficking, uh, privately funded project in India. Um, we're uh, working mm. primarily in West Bengal in Sonagachi, which is uh, one of the most notorious um, red light districts in Kolkata. I'm um, doing amazing interventions with single mother-headed households in that area, um, helping moms um, get get out, get a new life, helping children um, avoid uh, second-generation commercial sexual exploitation or trafficking by um, removing them from that situation and onboarding them into formal education, doing exceptional work with the West Bengal government to ensure that their their systems um, for child protection, for legal protections are functional so that families can access justice when they need it. Um, and then looking across the border into Nepal and Bangladesh as well uh, to the source communities. Laura, before we end real quick, you've been through um, many different administrations. Has the Trump administration, the current administration, really taken on trafficking both domestically and, and internationally in, in strong ways? Is that something that you think is worth 
everyone applauding. Yes, they've done. Um, they've definitely um, prioritized human trafficking. Ivanka has made it um, part of her. Ivanka Trunk has made it part of her platform. Um, she was present at the at the trafficking report um, last June, um, a part of um, just kind of solemnizing the the importance of mm-hmm. of that uh, work that lays the foundation for our diplomatic efforts, um, and for lauding the um, the trafficking heroes that are noted for their really compelling and excellent work around the world. That's great. Well, that's good to know. We have to keep our eye on on those efforts and and congratulate when congratulations Mm -hmm. are due, right? True. And Laura, congratulations to you for for all the wonderful work that you do with World Vision. Where where can people find out more about this? Uh, Worldvision.org. And thank you all so much for having me. Oh, it was a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. This week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's Gospel. Please stay tuned for Father Landry and do look up his daily homily, written and audio, on his website, catholicpreaching.com. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a true joy to have the chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us this Sunday as we draw closer to Christmas. The followers of John the Baptist come to Jesus and ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for another? John was imprisoned, and his friends were likely wondering if Jesus were the long-awaited one, and if so, why he was waiting so long to do something. So John sent them to grow in faith by asking the question directly of Jesus. Jesus' response was to show how he was fulfilling everything the prophet Isaiah had said the Messiah would do when at last he would arrive. Jesus had made the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the leper have the skin of newborns, the dead live again, and the poor receive the good news. He was doing everything not only Isaiah foretold, but all the prophets had foretold. He was not meeting, however, the expectations of those who thought the Messiah would have a political mission, kicking out the Romans and their stooges like Herod, setting John free, instituting an earthly kingdom. That's why Jesus finished by saying, Blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. Some of them clearly were taking offense that Jesus was not behaving according to their political expectations. There's some people in every age who don't like the way the God-man chooses to reign. Not only does evil exist, but those who do evil often seem to get rich, hold political office, even commit atrocities against children, the defenseless, and those who are faithful to Jesus like John. It's important for us to ponder Jesus' words, blessed is the one who takes no offense. Jesus would ultimately be crucified himself, the greatest scandal of all to worldly ideas of Messiah. But he rose from the dead on the third day, and he can and does draw good out of evil, So rather than taking scandal, we need to grow in trust in the way he rules. Jesus went on in this conversation to say some extraordinary things about John the Baptist. He praised him, calling him the greatest man born of woman. He said he is more than a prophet, but the one about whom it was written, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. John not only foretold the Messiah's coming, but pointed him out when at last he came and helped people prepare the way to follow him. That's why he's greater than the other prophets. John continues that great work of preparation every second and third Sunday of Advent. He sends us to Jesus 
so that we might find out personally how Jesus is and follow Jesus. But then Jesus says something about us in the gospel. As great as John the Baptist was, Jesus says that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John could announce the Lord's coming, he could point him out. But the least in the kingdom of heaven, into which we enter when we're baptized by the Holy Spirit in fire, is able, literally, to receive the Lamb of God within, receive his very life, his words, his being, and live and reign in communion with him. So if John is more than a prophet, and the least of the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, we must really ponder our vocation and mission, who are called to be greater than John. We're called to do more than to point out Christ when he comes, but together with Christ dwelling within us, take Christ to others, so that he can heal their physical and spiritual handicaps, and in their poverty, receive the riches of his good news. In response to the many people today who take offense at Jesus, who question and doubt him, who think he was foolish to found the church the way that he did, with certain teachings they don't like, with a structure that they claim is outdated or discriminatory, we're called to bring Jesus to them. Our work is in some ways tougher than John the Baptist's. The people of his day were longing for a Messiah, Many in our day already think they know who Jesus is and don't find him and the Christian message compelling enough to seek to live it to the full, even to live it on Sundays. Well, it's perhaps harder from a human point of view to change people's minds than form them in the first place. We have something immense going for us that John didn't have. We have the full revelation of God's word, the miracle of his resurrection, the grace that comes from the sacraments, and the holiness that exists in certain places in the church, all on our side. With regard, for example, to our family members and friends who have stopped practicing the faith, the Lord isn't going to send them angels like he sent, the shep sent them to shepherds on the Christmas morning to announce to them anew the good news. He doesn't have to, because he has us. But like Jesus said about John, the people of our age do not want to see us as reeds swayed by the wind who don't stand for anything. They don't want to see us as people whose faith is lived simply by dressing our best on Sunday. They want to see the difference Jesus makes in our life. So we mark on Sunday, Gaudete Sunday, the Sunday of joy, on which we focus on the joy that comes from Christ's coming, his presence, his mercy, his help, and his calling. The Lord wants to help us radiate the joy that comes from our faith and give a real witness that Christ is here. As we'll sing on Christmas Day, they want to see in us a glimpse of the joy to the world that we profess he continuously brings. In a world that suffers with so much depression and brokenness, where there's so much political strife wearing people out, where many suffer injustice and persecution, Jesus sends us out as prophets, as more than prophets, as greater than John the Baptist's. Tell people, get ready for Jesus. Embrace him, live with him, and joyfully bring others to experience the difference he makes. Jesus said that he had come into the world so that his joy might be ours and our joy might be complete. On Gaudete Sunday, Jesus wants to give us a taste of that joy, and help us through our communion with him in the Eucharist to bring that joy to the world one person at a time. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry, for that wonderful homily. You give us such a treat every week. So good for us. And unfortunately, it's time to say goodbye. It's the end of our episode. And we've had a wonderful time talking to Laura Brayman of World Vision about human trafficking, uh, modern slavery, sex slavery. These are sad topics, but... But, but a fabulous conversation because we also spoke about beauty and human dignity and I think it's it's very it's very helpful that Laura lays that foundation and it's a nice call for all of us um, 
people of goodwill and people with formation and people who are concerned um, about how people are treated as far away as Thailand, India, mm-hmm. um, Indonesia, or right in and Fairfax County. Keep, and also to keep very much in mind that our Christian philosophy, our Christian values, are defenses. The yeah. only defenses that we have really against a well, world— Well, solutions for a world yeah, Defenses and solutions. Uh, the o- and the only thing that we really have to set against, um, a, you know, a corrupt human nature that naturally falls into— uh, these terrible patterns of behavior um, that we were talking about. So, such sad things, but, yeah. you know, our Christian our Christian identity can protect us, and, and we're meant to infect the world with it. Absolutely. We're meant to, to fight back wherever we find it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Gracie, for coming up again. Yeah, it's been wonderful. You've been listening to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and the podcast of the Catholic Association, and uh, you can find us on our uh, our podcast. You Don't can forget find, to rate us. Yes. Rate us. Find like our podcast ten wherever, stars. wherever you Michelin. listen to your podcast. Michelin rating. You can also go to the catholicassociation.org slash podcast and they'll send you out there to our to all those different platforms. And of course the radio show. Um, Guadalupe Radio Network 11 a.m. on Fridays. So listen if you're local. And thank you and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>